This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, January the 19th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Testing the vocal range on a Friday. Sing along if you want to. Coming up on the show today, it's the weekly news panel. Michelle McQuig, Joita Gupta, and I talk about some of the most interesting stories of the week, including the deadline for Canadian businesses to repay pandemic loans and pandemic supports from the government. It has passed. So what do you think about the government standing firm on bringing an end to those supports? And then from the housing file, some tenants facing evictions in Ontario are demanding money from landlords to avoid the arbitration process and tribunal delays. Where do you land on that? And Montreal has a plan to revitalize its downtown core. How would you feel about a 24-hour party zone? in your city all night long well, let's begin the show with the top story of the day a new survey shows that 84 percent of canadians believe that speaking english or french is a core piece of national identity nicole reese breaks down the findings the survey from the Pew Research Centre found 15% say they consider it less or not at all important to be able to speak either of Canada's official languages. Of the more than 1,000 people surveyed across Canada by phone, 81% of people linked customs and traditions to their national identity, compared with 19% who did not. Although in the United States only 78% prioritized being able to speak English, while 21% felt the opposite. The study's Canadian segment surveyed 1,007 people across Across Canada between February and April of 2023. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Switching over to stories about your money, the Crave streaming service is adding new tiers. Naira Ahmed explains. Bell Media has told some Crave subscribers who use its premium ad-free package that they'll now have to pay $22 per month. The move comes as all major streaming TV platforms have raised their prices, seeking new ways to squeeze more revenue out of their subscribers. Although the Crave change only affects the most expensive subscription tier. Crave standard with ads subscription will continue to cost $14.99 and its basic with ads plan will stay at $9.99 per month. Naira Ahmed, the Canadian Press. And there's a big change coming to Canadian technology retailers. Karen Rebo explains. Best Buy Canada and Bell Canada say the source, a wholly owned subsidiary of Bell, will be rebranded as Best Buy Express, with locations expected to start opening later this year. The small format stores will offer consumer electronics as well as wireline and wireless services from Bell, Virgin Plus and Lucky Mobile. A Bell spokeswoman says there are currently just under 300 the source locations. She says the stores not among the 165 being rebranded 
ended will close this year. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Wow, changes to Crave, cra changes to the source. It was a busy day at Bell yesterday. Must have had lots of meetings to execute those plans. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook on Thursday, you were asked this question. Do you feel like representation of disability in mass media is improving? 52% of you said yes, and 48% of you said no. So certainly you were feeling pretty mixed on that issue. Over on X, Joshua says it is improving slowly, but not at the level it needs to. Over on Facebook, Tony writes in yes. However, ensuring that it continues and is accurately represented and portrayed by persons with disabilities is another thing. Kendall says yes, AMI and now with Dave Brown is a great example. Heck yeah, Kendall. I appreciate the I appreciate the doodaps. And Pearly Pearly comments somewhat, but no, not as much as it should be. Dana chimes in. If by improving you mean more representation, then yes. Does arbitrary representation make things better? Not necessarily. Tanika writes in, yes, it has improved when compared to the past a bit, but in more ways than one, it has also failed or been replaced by AI or computer graphics. Like I mentioned to you yesterday, the question was yes or no, but was looking for some nuance there. You did a great job chiming in and sharing your perspective. And again, I will repose the question, where to go from here? If you believe in the premise that it has gotten a little bit better, where do you go from here? Today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This will be a topic of conversation in the news panel in about 40 minutes or so. It'll be the way we land the plane with Michelle, myself and Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. But I want to hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex. Montreal wants to create a 24-hour party zone downtown. How would you feel about one in your city? Good or Bad. Laura Bain, how would you feel about Halifax getting a 24-hour party zone going? Umta, 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 umta. <laughs> or in your case, it would be 24 hours of fiddles. I was going to say that's, that's uh, yeah, you need some more like st foot stomping and like that kind of thing. Some <laughs> acoustic guitars, some fiddle music. Well, I try to be in bed by 10 every <laughs> night to maintain my sleep schedule. So I feel like I'm not the target audience for this 24-hour party zone. And I would get pretty grumpy over this if I lived downtown. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe residents should get some sort of compensation for this. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I do think it's important and I think it's really nice that Montreal is thinking about how to keep its downtown healthy and vital. That's something that hasn't happened in Halifax uh, kind of since 2020. I've noticed a lot of businesses closing down. There's a lot of vacant buildings and it's a lot sketchier downtown than it was a few years ago. Now, is this the answer? I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I'll leave that to the experts to decide the people who work in the industry you know that sort of thing the residents but i sort of am very curious about who these people are that are keen for 24-hour access to uh to bars and dance music and i mean i don't know people who live people who work in the industry people who uh work to close bars till three in the morning and wouldn't mind necessarily going to a bar to uh, end their day by blowing off a little bit of steam <laughs> 
But Dave, none of them are closing now, so they're just gonna. Well, okay, but I don't know. It, right, but it's but it's only a very particular part of the downtown core, right? It's not every bar is going to be allowed to stay open 24 hours a day. It's going to be sort of contained in a very particular area. I do, I do see what you're saying about if I was a resident of downtown, I'd be ticked. But like, let's be clear: if you live in a downtown core, especially if you live in Montreal's downtown core, you know you should already be prepared for a little bit of club and noise and hooting and hollering and having a good time. I, I just think that if it does doesn't affect me and I am much like you Laura bedtime is much closer to uh, 10 to midnight <laughs> for me these days it doesn't really affect me so frankly if this is what business owners want and what people want and what party goers want hey it's a good idea who am I to judge just because I'm a loser Alex what do you think yeah I, I'm I'm on the side with you Dave it's, it's great if people want it you know have at it and it means that there's always a place you can go if you want to party even if it's 10 a.m 10 p.m you know regardless uh, 2 p.m 2 a.m you're, you're covered i think the other thing to keep in mind too this isn't just like a invitation that there's going to be like a loudspeaker just sitting outside in downtown montreal that's just blaring music they're still contained into uh different uh, businesses and things like that so it's not like it's an outdoor like street party that's going to be happening every single minute of the day so i i don't really have a problem with it and, and as long as it's you know continues to be regulated like other bars and restaurants are regulated currently what's the big issue in, in my mind <laughs> there is the thing that my dad used to tell me when i used to stumble home at three or four in the morning and he would tell me dave nothing good ever happens after midnight and i still him, dad all the best stuff happens after midnight and we did had an ideological difference about that and now as i get older more and more i realize yeah, nothing good does happen after midnight. Alex, Laura, thank you for this. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Oh, I said Twitter. I'm not allowed to say Twitter. That's $2 in the fine bucket. On X, at Accessible Media. Feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. Feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. Or 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number. 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number. Hey, and don't just answer that question, right? Don't just think of this question as limited to the 24-hour party zone. How else would you fix your down core, downtown core? If you don't like the 24-hour party zone, what else would you do? You know, don't just be a negative Nelly, a naysayer. Be real. Talk to me. Coming up after the break, the news panel gets together. First topic on deck, the deadline for Canadian businesses to repay government pandemic loans was yesterday. The government stands by their decision to bring these programs to an end. What do you think about that? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. Standing by our Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Dave. And everyone. I know we have Joita just a little bit slow on somewhere. the fader there. A little slow on the fader there. That's not Joita's fault. That's on our end. Let's uh, oh, jump. Okay. Let's, yeah, you're okay, Joita. You're okay. <laughs> let's let's uh, jump right into the first topic du jour. The deadline for Canadian businesses to repay government pandemic loans was yesterday. Lisa Laporte explains. 
Hundreds of thousands of businesses and nonprofits received a Canada Emergency Business Account loan of up to $60,000 during the COVID-19 pandemic. Up to one-third of the loans could be forgiven if the outstanding amount was repaid by today. Otherwise, the debt will convert into a three-year loan with 5% annual interest. Businesses have the option to refinance the loan with a financial institution, but the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Restaurants Canada have been calling for another extension to the deadline. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it's time to wrap up pandemic financial aid programs. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Michelle, you flagged the topic. Why did you want to bring it to the table? I did. I, I feel this one's important on a number of levels. Uh, small businesses, of course, is something we all feel very passionate about. But the, the whole issue of pandemic programs and managing those and when to pull the plug is, I think, a really interesting one. And you're seeing this debate playing out here. It's one that I think really hits people where they live in a lot of places because you, you've got people taking the government to task for, for overspending, for for financial bloat, for financial mismanagement even. And now they're trying to to rein in a program that a lot of people are saying is still deeply necessary for reasons that might have been at least somewhat foreseeable. So it's actually quite of an interesting debate. It tends to get pretty uh, polarizing if the uh, discussion to the CP newsroom or any kind of indication. Um, <laughs> so uh, what better forum for a lively topic of conversation than the, than the news panel? Yeah, Joita, it's been about two years. In a couple of weeks, it'll have been about two years since significant COVID restrictions were lifted. The end of the Omicron wave in uh, February of 2022. So what do you think about the government standing firm on this 2024 date in January? Well, on the face of it, it is a grant. Uh, that means uh, it, it wasn't a grant, which means it, it it did have to be paid back at some point. A grant, of course, you get to keep forever. Um, and seeing as it's not a grant uh, and there is an option to convert it into a loan, uh, you know, via financial institution, some could argue that that's you know, that's fair. You you pay back the loan gradually over the course of a couple of years. A 5% interest rate is pretty much at par with the kind of interest rates that most homeowners are taking out on their mortgages right now. So yeah, it's actually a little bit lower. Yeah. It's, it's actually a little bit lower. It's actually yeah. a little yeah. bit it lower. Is. So, yep. so there's that 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 perspective <clears throat> that, you know, it's it was never meant as a grant. And, you know, to put a nail in the coffin, I suppose one could also argue that if the CRA has gone after individuals to pay back their CERB, then why should businesses of any stripe get a uh, get a yeah. Get a, get a free pass. Joita, that's, that Joita, that's the nail on the head. No, no, I'll, I'll let you finish, but that's the nail on the head right there, that the government was coming after CERB repayments like, like, mm-hmm. like months. Like, yes. I want to say in like 2022, they were already coming after individuals for CERB yes. repayments who misappropriated CERB. So I think that's a really important piece of context here. Businesses were essentially given two more years than individuals to get their stuff together. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But of course, it is a little more complicated. The reality on the ground, especially for restaurants, is quite a bit more complicated, as I think we can all attest. Uh, I interrupted you. You can finish, you can you can get to what you wanted to say. Well, that's what I was saying, that I think the reality oh, is on the it. ground. Okay. Yes, I did say it. <laughs> All right, fantastic. All right, great. We stopped Joita in the middle of her windup. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, Michelle, I think I think timeline-wise here, Joita sort of hit that spot on the head. A couple of years to sort of 
get this paid back interest-free. Now, two years later, at a lower than prime interest rate, you get an opportunity to convert this into a loan. 5% on $60,000 is about $3,000 a year in interest payments, not an ungoshly sum, not an unhandleable sum. And if $3,000 a year is the difference between a business making it and not making it, sorry, guys, like, your business sucks. No, I, Michelle, I mean that. I, like, I mean that seriously. No, no, like, I, I, if three thousand no, dollars can bankrupt a small business, like, come on, like, let's be real here. No, it's it, it's it's a very fair point, and, and I will add to all of this. I I agree with all, all the timing arguments that you've all raised, and what is more, this deadline was for partial loan forgiveness. It wasn't to get it all paid back, like we said. So this is it, it was to qualify for an additional measure of relief. If you get some of some of your loan paid back by by yesterday. You could have part of it forgiven as well. So there's there, there were it was a very sort of generous and flexible program, and yeah, I think that the, the question I keep coming back to is yeah, these programs cannot go on indefinitely. We know that the government spent billions of dollars on these, have taken a lot of heat as a result. Uh, of course, you can't please everyone in a situation like this, but after two extensions and plenty of notice. Um, I have heard more unreasonable arguments than they've had plenty of time and we need to wrap this up now, and especially given the terms that are currently in place. Yeah, no, no, that said, I know I just took a shot at a lot of small business owners and now they're very mad at me and the hate mail's coming <laughs> in. Uh, Joey, to you and Michelle and I, as we've been having these conversations about the broader economy, have acknowledged multiple times the difference between the macroeconomics and the microeconomics. So don't, so I want to sort of retract my heartless statement a smidge and say, Juita, that I do understand that small businesses are a big employer in this country and there are economic implications if they all go under, especially in what continues to be an uneasy microeconomic moment in the economy. So I'm not uncaring. I do acknowledge that the idea of businesses going under as we're in the middle of something resembling a recession, I, I, I do get it. I do have concerns about a lot of businesses going belly up, even if yeah, they're bad yeah. businesses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the chief concern that I would have in relation to what we're talking about right now is if a whole bunch of small businesses go under, well, forget it, they're not going to pay the loans back at all. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that employment is going, unemployment is going to go up uh, because you know these small businesses do employ a large number of people who will suddenly find themselves jobless and there are knock-on effects from that. And in fairness to the restaurant industry, it has seen a very slow recovery, even before the pandemic. The the profit margins on a restaurant are very small. I mean, there's a few yes. and, uh, restaurants that are far few and far between that see these you know massive profits. But for the most part, even before the pandemic, restaurant owners were struggling. And we've talked about the rising cost of food, which I think affects their bottom line, the fact that cost of living <clears> has <throat> gone up across the board. So all of us are spending more on housing, are spending more on our groceries, we're spending more on gasoline, you name it, heating, which means we have less discretionary spending, ergo less money to spend on things like going out to eat at a restaurant. So I do think that restaurants are in something of a unique situation. And rather than, you know, say, end it or not, or don't end it, maybe the more relevant question in some respects would be, was there a better approach to take? And rather than, you know, going uh, by, a, rather than taking a hard and fast deadline, maybe it would have been worthwhile to think about indexing uh, the ability of a small business to pay back these loans to their profits. So by all means, if you are you know, successful, you're making a lot of money, your profits are coming in, then you should be required to pay back the loans. 
But if not, if you're not being able to demonstrate that you're making profits and you have not seen the kind of recovery that maybe other sectors have in the economy, then maybe we need to be looking at a, a gentler approach to recoup the money from a small business that has that has not recovered to the same extent or has not done as well. I mean, on paper, that sort of a case-by-case -case approach sounds very promising to me, but that is only on paper because I can readily acknowledge mm -hmm. that if the government were to take something like this on, it would create a bureaucracy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's also, it's and also, and so if, Michelle, if Michelle, hold on, hold on, hold on, other... Michelle, hold on. It's also a little bit revisionist because the point when these programs exactly. were being un unveiled in the first place was get help out fast. About right? the door right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. That was exactly what I was going to say. Yep. Oh, okay, the, sorry, the, Michelle. I, the, I... the target was, that's all good. Nope, we, we're, we're excited over the same thought. Yeah, that, that, was the whole, that was the whole point is that companies were saying, we're going to have to stop paying people tomorrow if we don't get money today. And that was the, the, the impetus for the program. Now, I do agree, though, that there could be good lessons learned on this. We found ourselves in an unprecedented situation in 2020 when these programs had to be developed on the fly. Uh, and now we have templates to follow. And hopefully, if we do find ourselves in such a situation again, maybe it would be a little smoother. But we didn't really have a playbook to work from before. Yeah, there, there, there are still active case studies going on, right? The, the, the research is only really happening now to truly understand what the broader impact economically of the pandemic was. So, so, the, so, so all these things present little case studies, but decisions had to be made in a, in a, in a low information situation for a couple of years there. So yeah, I, I extend empathy, but I, also, but I also do acknowledge, like it is, it is cold. Like it is cold to say, hey, <laughs> if your business can't handle this, like you're, you're out the door. Uh, Michelle, Joita mentioned the restaurants sector and I will by extension apply like the bar and tavern and club sector to this. Yeah. What are some other sectors that maybe could be extended a little more empathy? I think about like the gym and fitness industry, which was drastically impacted mm -hmm. for the better part of for two sure. and a half years. And then a lot of people yep. bought home workout gear, so they might never have gone back at all. Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent one. And, and a lot of retail environments, there's a ton of, we know, about the supports that big box stores and other retailers got, they were allowed to stay open and declared essential services. But all of those that were not, which was many, um, are still feeling some pinches. And this is where I also think that the government has been relatively reasonable in that the, the, the factors that a lot of these businesses are citing for holding them back in their recovery are things like supply chain issues, stuff that was a, a bit, at least somewhat foreseeable during the pandemic. We knew supply chains are being compromised. Um, inflation often follows in those cases with restaurants, food prices, of course, are a different ballgame. But I think the government did account for at least some of these semi-foreseeable factors, perhaps not in scale, but withdrew those extensions. And I, I would like to think they would have made a bit of a difference to some of those other businesses. But I think I, it's, it's clear, though, just from the scope and, and the number of arguments coming out from all across other sectors. So I, you, you mentioned retail. Or I mentioned retail. Gyms, gyms is a good one. Anything really in the hospitality sector, I think, could, mm -hmm. it could stand yeah. to, to amusement parks, like at any theaters, uh, arts, arts mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tons of ones that when you're hearing this this much consistency in the arguments, it's the old where there's smoke, there's fire argument. There clearly is. Uh, more going on here than than we're, than we're able to tackle. Yeah, Juita, in a lot of cases for these sectors outside of even restaurants and bars, it's it's turnstile sectors, right? It's it's sectors that depend mm -hmm. on people being in a place and spending money to be there, and having money to spend, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. the other piece. Yeah. Anything that relies on discretionary 
uh, income has been has taken a hit. Uh, grocery store, grocery chains are still doing well, even though grocery prices have gone up because we can't wriggle out of buying food, and it just it's it's a non-starter. So I think we have to have a little more of a we do have to have a little more empathy for this whole situation. I think the economic consequences of the pandemic are still being felt and will likely continue to be felt for years to come. So. Um, it's a tricky one because as I said a few as I said a few minutes ago, I I do wonder if maybe rather than looking at sectors, we might be better off looking at individual cases. But as I've readily acknowledged, it's a it's a bit of a nightmare and much better on paper than in practice. Uh but uh, yeah, I mean to answer your question, I think any kind of any sector, any business that relies on discretionary income, uh the hospitality sector, uh, of in uh, you know amusement parks, any form of entertainment, uh I, I think those would be the places where I would I would continue to see uh, the lingering impacts of the pandemic. Because you know, when it comes to the necessities, whether it's been housing or food, we've no matter how much they cost, we've always had to pony up and pay, which has, of course, meant that we have less money. Yeah, the the only thing I'll say here too is that when you actually go to the when you actually go to these places now, they're still they're still jam packed, right? Like sports arenas across the country are having no problem moving tickets. Uh, movie theaters are still doing good numbers when a good when a good movie is coming out. Like like a lot of a lot of the case of the inequality that we're talking about is really and truly there are places that are continuing to thrive through the prices. So again, that's where Juita is really right to identify there are these individualistic cases that sometimes end up being the stuff that gets splashed into a news story rather than perhaps the more gen the more generalized picture is there are a lot of places still having success michelle like like, like like that's the thing that makes the economic picture so confusing right now is that there actually is quite a bit of economic success going on in the country right now it's just that the losers are getting beaten up in a terrible way well, I think there's that, but I think there's also just a lack of data for us to truly understand the full picture. I think we we risk running, the, making the mistake that sometimes happens in in our journal in our in our jobs, when we start deriving story pitches just from anecdotes. Sometimes there's something there. Sometimes there is a broader trend, but sometimes there isn't, and it's hard to extrapolate just from our own individual experiences of going into certain businesses without the data that, as you pointed out earlier, is still emerging. Yeah. We're still navigating our way through all this and truly coming to grips with what the fallout has been. So I, I do think it's a bit tricky to to draw broad conclusions just based on all those factors. All right, then let's put this topic to bed. If we can't draw any conclusions, then let's stop talking about it. All right, coming up after the break, some tenants facing eviction in Ontario are demanding money from landlords to avoid delays at the rental landlord tribunals. So where do you land on the issue? Should landlords be paying out tenants to hand over the keys? Or is there a better solution? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's get into the next topic. Tenants and landlords in Ontario are grappling over evictions. There is a huge backlog at the rental board, the tenant and landlord board. Tenants are asking landlords to cut deals. Hey, you can evict me. We can avoid the dispute process. Give me cash and I will get out. 
Some landlords not in love with this idea. Joita, what do you want to explore here? Well, it's been said of landlords and tenants that there are there are no other two groups of people that need each other more but like each other less. So it is very much in the same vein as uh, some of the more the stories we've heard about the ongoing tension between landlords and tenants. But it is worth noting in the context of this particular story that we're not talking about large corporate landlords. It's not really mm-hmm. feasible, I think, for a tenant to try and say to a I don't know, a Caprite or an Achilles or another big landlord that's operating in the country. Hey, listen, I'll move out um, if you pay me X amount of dollars. And in any case, with large landlord, they can't really use some of the provisions like, you know, moving, uh, asking a tenant to move out so that the owner can move in. So that's, you know, but but it, often when we conceive of the tussle between landlords and tenants, we are thinking in terms of a David and Goliath situation. But here we're looking at, I think, two parties that are more evenly matched. So I think it is worth exploring where in a story that is rife with tension, uh, where we actually come down on the issue, whether we actually want to take a side. And there are some really interesting arguments to be made beyond the specifics of what landlords and tenants are dealing with right now that delve into access to justice, which is a very big issue, not just for tenants and landlords and other people seeking remedies, but you know, for other people as well, people with disabilities going through the Human Rights Tribunal, having to wait yes. ages to get some kind of a resolution. So there is a larger conversation that I think this leads into about what access to justice actually looks like. If you are a landlord or a tenant or whomever, and you're waiting up to 12 months to 18 months, to get your day in court, is that just or fair? And if it's not just or fair, then what do you do about it? Yeah, let's put that one to the side for a second. That's a little too abstract to start the conversation. Let's stick to the issue on the front end. For years, I have been flagging the issue of a lot of individual citizens buying a condo and then choosing to become a landlord, which is a very precarious, tricky thing to do that puts them in a bad spot. It can also be a very good thing. I had a wonderful relationship, anecdotally, with my with my old landlord who did the exact same thing, and we had a great time. But Michelle, I think at the core of this issue and where I land on it, if you want to do a cash for keys deal, if you're a landlord and you evict somebody and your tenant come back comes back and says, well, I would like to dispute this, and it's going to take 12 to 18 months for you to get resolution here, Give me some money and get out. I, I think that if this is done in good faith and through a reasonable negotiation, it makes total sense. But when it's just done in bad faith as a stall tactic, that's where it becomes a problem. But I think as as an ideology in an ideal good faith world, yeah, rock and roll. If you're a landlord, get out of my get out of my space. And if you're a tenant, I got some cash to go get into my new space. Yeah, I don't have an issue with it in principle either. But the, 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 what? bugs me and where I come back to and where I kind of land on all of this is that clearly the process is just broken. I don't think that these sorts of deals are generally being done in good faith. They, they, they do seem to be a tactic reserved for for more extreme cases. And the financial hardship on all sides is, is well, on, on, on the landlord side in particular, in this case, is extremely acute. Um, I can't fathom doing such a thing as a tenant. At the same time, I've heard landlord stories that make me think that perhaps in those situations, maybe I would do such a thing. It's So I, I do agree that it could work, but I just don't think it's being deployed that way right now. And all of this is just another of so many indicators that the system for landlord-tenant resolution in Ontario specifically is just straight up broken. I, I just, I don't know how else to put it. There's, I, that's my big takeaway yeah. is that 
we almost need to start from the ground up with this one because oh, it's boy. just so bogged down. Like it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. But but it's it's not just Ontario, by the way. You the three of us talked about an issue in New Brunswick around some adjudication mm-hmm. around security deposits that was leading to mm-hmm. long long delays. That was in uh, late. Gosh, last, that was my own topic too. Yeah, you last, remember that. Late, late last yeah. year we talked about that. Like there are only really a couple of provinces that actually have tenant protection boards, and even those are backlogged like wild. Joita, before we enter into the abstract, where do you land on the issue? It's a, it's a complicated one, and there are no easy answers. And I'm going to give you two cases to make my point. The first one is, let's say there's a homeowner, Dave, and Dave owns a detached house in Toronto. Well, good for you. Oh, my gosh. And, fantasy. <laughs> and so I didn't know we were going to fantasy land over here. And, uh, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. So in this fantasy world, uh, Dave owns a, a detached house in Toronto. But the way you pay for your detached house is, of course, you have your income. But let's say you stick Michelle in the basement and you stick me in the attic. Oh, wow. You, would you manage to convert into a home? So for a lot of small landlords in in the, in that position... Host's privileged to have actually, a living room. Okay. <laughs> uh, in that position, a lot of small landlords are are leaning on tenancy agreements by, by having people in their basements or, you know, having a, an adjoining sort of an in-law suite or what have you to try and pay their mortgages. And we just, we say this so often, I'm sick of saying it, I'm sure you're sick of hearing it, mortgage rates are going up and this is how people are managing to afford to pay those those mortgage rates, where people used to get 2.5, 3% interest rates, suddenly that has doubled. You're not looking at five, six, 6.5% interest rates. How are people managing to keep their homes? They're doing so by getting tenants. And so if you have a situation where in that first scenario, you need your tenant to move out, uh, maybe because you have an additional family member moving in or what your, whatever your situation is, you may not be in a position to make an exorbitant cash settlement on your tenant Mm -hmm. as a small landlord. You may not have $50,000 or $100,000 sitting pretty. Now, that said, there's a second scenario where, you know, let's say, which is kind of what Dave alluded to already, which is a small landlord. uh, So it's not a corporate landlord, but that person is basically hoarding properties, which I think can cause a number of problems in the real estate market. Uh, But to me, there's a, a distinct conversation to be had between do we empathize more with the person here, the tenant who's about to lose their home versus the person who, you know, having an investment property or two or five now realizes in a rising interest rate environment that that's just not economically feasible anymore and they want to dump their interest rate property and the fact uh, their, their, their investment property and the fact that there are, ex- there are extensive delays at the landlord and tenant board means that either they're not getting a resolution on their eviction application or their tenant is taking that opportunity to make large settlements, uh, ask for large financial compensation settlements. I don't know if I have as much sympathy for a small landlord in that situation because losing your investment property is nowhere near in the same realm of unfortunate as losing your home. Every time you move, it gets expensive. Uh, it's stressful. It costs a lot of money to pack and move and you know all of that. So I, I do think that Tenants have been getting the short end of the stick for a very long time. And there's an argument to be made that in a rising rent environment uh, where tenants don't really have too much recourse when they're facing an eviction um, and there's a lot of competition for rentals, there is an argument to be made that, you know, if you're able to get something out of the system or you're able to get something out of your landlord, that's that's okay. But we, yeah. again, it's not as I, black and white. Because, again, you know, I, I think the extreme cases cited in the CBC News article of people asking for 50000 or or 100000 like it's not representative of the broader practice. No, there, there, so. there are a lot of like the uh, finance bro uh, social media channels that actually do advocate for this practice to say, hey, here's a couple months rents, like get out. Um, and in a lot of cases, people will, people will end up accepting that, right? So I'm, I'm coming back to 
this idea in good faith. The extremes are always going to be the extremes. And maybe where I disagree with you, Joita, and I know it's not quite what you were expressing, like, isn't it possible to have empathy for everyone? Like, yeah, like, 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 that's kind of yeah, where I land here. Like, isn't it actually possible to have empathy for everyone? That, like, the fact that there's a backlog at the landlord-tenant board affects everybody Everyone. in a terrible way. And everything. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so much tendency to demonize the groups. I think, Joita, when you talked about the dynamic, it's, it's so true. I have friends who are landlords, and I, I don't love some of the way they talk about their tenants. Uh, likewise, people who rent... Um, Jokes about landlords are about commas jokes about lawyers and and the, the the tension like that's just the the most crude manifestation of this very fraught dynamic, and I think Joita is really onto something by talking about the changing nature of what the average landlord looks like. I don't think we can have this conversation in good faith without acknowledging that, and why these tensions are so real. And it's again, I I, I won't go down my usual favorite rabbit holes around. Well, civility and polarization and whatnot, but I like Michelle. It, let me let me drop let me drop a stat in here, and then you can finish the thought. Fifteen percent of re, uh, of fifteen uh, percent of real estate sales, personal real estate sales, uh, in terms of personal homes or residences, were made by a corporation in Canada last year. Fifteen percent of real estate sales of single homes, condos, duplexes were bought by a corporation. Right. So this is a story so really it, about humans. So humans, continue, yeah. Sorry. The other, yeah, no, exactly though. It's the other, it's the other eighty-five percent. That's it. That's that's great context. Shows you exactly how much the dynamic has shifted over the years. And if you're dealing with groups of humans, you're going to wind up with a system that uh, is bogged down by human foibles. And <laughs> this one, I think, is. I, I feel like the, the system we currently have in place is not geared towards the current reality. Part of why I think it's broken. It doesn't acknowledge, it doesn't allow for these sorts of human tensions. It is predicated more on a, a corporate model. And clearly the time has come to revisit that. So consulting time, Michelle, what, what's, what's nope. better? Like if you're gonna tear it down, what, like what's better? Because frankly, other than really hiring more people and speeding up the process, I, I really couldn't tell you what's better. I, well, nor do I. I, I. I acknowledge this is not my forte. In fact, I would absolutely be deferring to Joita right now. Yeah, okay. Was, so, so let's or, do that. So, let, so let's do that. Because honestly, I like Dave Brown Consulting has a lot of ideas. It does not have an idea to fix this. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is an easy fix for this one. Uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind here. First and foremost, I do think that the big part of this is uh, hiring and training more adjudicators. It's There's just no getting away from okay, that. Okay, yeah, so that, that's the baseline. That's the baseline point. That's the baseline, but I think it's a baseline that is important to, to keep in mind. I mean, we're partly in this situation because they were understaffed for so very long, uh, but also because of the pandemic and some of the reasons, the systemic reasons that I highlighted, which has caused a real spike, especially in evictions for landlords' own use applications, where, as I said earlier, you know, investment uh, people are now getting rid of their investment properties or uh, and things like that it's it's caused uh, the the high interest rate environment has really caused ripples in the real estate market and and we are seeing the human consequences of that uh so i think part of this is also recognizing that we already have provisions in the law that you know if you look at the charter uh, they talk about the right to uh, trial without unreasonable delay. Uh, so there is already some language in our in in our existing Charter of Rights and Freedoms that says that you should not be kept waiting, uh, you know, months if not years at a time to get a hearing date in in court. And one of the reasons why they set up these administrative tribunals in the first place, um, you know, like the Landlord and Tenant Board and the Human Rights Tribunal and the Social Justice Benefits Tribunal, was to a 
reduce wait times, obviously, which, you know, we can now argue hasn't really come to fruition, but also to make it more accessible for ordinary people. The other solution that has been floated, and of course, it's been tried out at the landlord and tenant board is to do everything online uh, in the in the hopes that it would also help to speed things up while making things more um, accessible. But that, again, is up for debate because just because, you know, things are online, making it easier for some people doesn't mean that it's going to be universally accessible. Um, no. I know that, you know, many people don't have access to the internet or technology. So I think it's a tricky one to resolve. Maybe we should have some more conversations about when we allow for landlords own use uh, applications to be made to allow tenants to be evicted from their homes and whether we need to increase compensation. For example, right now in Ontario, if you are a tenant and you your landlord wants to move in, so you uh, get kicked out, you are entitled to get no strings attached, one month's rent as compensation. Maybe we need to up that yeah, to three that, months there rent you go. or five months rent. I think yeah, that might yeah, be a good place go. to start and then look at some of those systemic issues beyond that. And, and that essentially is this practice, right? This practice would say like, yeah, give me four or five months rent and I'll get out. Yeah. Right? So you establish the baseline, you make the baseline higher, it makes it easier for people to actually make the decision. It doesn't make it any less stressful or any worse for your life, but at least at least and it like changes the context. A, and maybe you should pay a, like a base amount for like moving costs. Like maybe there should be an acknowledgement of right, that because I, right. I just moved recently and yeah. it does add up like yeah. thousands oh, of yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, uh, Michelle, Joita really got into the abstract there, and I think it's worth giving uh, both of us an opportunity here just on the way out the door to consider the abstract. It does speak to the benefit of process, right? You want tribunals, you, you want adjudicators, you want decision makers who can objectively make choices, but it's pretty useless if your quest for justice takes 12, 24, 36 months. So it does speak to maybe some broader issues that go well outside the housing picture that go into other human rights issues, disability issues, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. It does really speak to the fact that we've built a system, we've built a process, but the process itself is so bogged down. Absolutely. And, and you're right to identify that it's across all tribunals, all sectors, uh, even like like certain financial decisions that have to come before committee, all, all, all these things, there's a lot that gets bogged down. It happens every single time. And when Joita talked about the right to a process without unreasonable legal delay, that does apply only to courts. And I have always wondered when it's a matter of time until someone tries to introduce a Jordan's principle for tribunal activity. Yeah, yeah. Jordan's principle is the one that, that puts firm limits on courts and saying, if, if your case has taken longer than X amount of time, it's being thrown out. It's done. It mm -hmm. needs to get done before this. So I, I I don't know how possible it would be, but I suspect at some point someone's going to say enough is enough and try to push yeah. to implement something the, similar across at least one tribunal that might set precedent for other yeah. ones. The, the problem is it just ends up costing money and who pays for that? The government. Like, you know, like, like that. And we're right back to where we were in topic one. It's, it's like, yeah, it really is. This like, is the government's is, yeah. fault. The government has to fix it. Well, it's going to take more money. Oh, we don't want that. So, you know, here we are again. We've two topics in a row. Again. I lend being like, oh, well, that's, that's great. Uh, all right. <laughs> Coming up after the break, try to have a little what bit a time. of Yeah. Well, yeah. After the break, let's try to have a little bit of fun because I'm officially bummed out. Montreal has a plan to revitalize its downtown core. They want to create a 24 hour party zone. How would you feel about something like that in your city? This is the Now News Panel on AMI TV.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck. Hopefully this one's a little bit more fun. Montreal has a plan to revitalize its downtown core. Giuseppe Villante has more. The city of Montreal hopes an all-night entertainment zone can help revive its sagging downtown. Officials have released a plan to relaunch the downtown core by the year 2030. That plan includes a round-the-clock nightlife zone, possibly in a neighborhood called the Quartier Latin. Officials were short on specifics, however, about what kind of entertainment will be permitted to go on all night. They say they also want to bring in more winter activities to the area as a way of capitalizing on Montreal's northern climate. Giuseppe Valiente, the Canadian Press, Montreal. Should be noticed, the, Car- the Cartier Latin in downtown uh, Montreal already has a uh, after-hours nightclub that I certainly have absolutely never attended. I definitely was not there till 11 in the morning in the uh, spring of 2016. Didn't happen. No autobiographical experience whatsoever on that one. <laughs> but this is obviously a bit of a Montreal news hook story, guys. But this is this is something that could be applied with something of a national lens. Michelle, how would you feel about a 24-hour party zone in your city? I mean, you kind of live in a pretty, uh, pretty party, party part of the town. Kind of, it's sort of, kind of, but I also have the benefit of more of a residential street, so I don't have to deal with the noise. I would not want to live near or in the heart <laughs> of a 24-hour party zone. I can say that much. Would I have any objection to it existing? No, not in theory. What I would object to is if all the businesses are concentrated down there and there were no options of, you know, cute little restaurants or any of those things in other parts of the city. I would hate to see all the sort of all the entertainment concentrated there at the expense of other things. But I doubt that would happen, I'm sure, for a variety of reasons, including real estate prices. Um, so I, I think the idea is fine. Does it have a great deal of appeal for me as as a person? Is it something that would lure me to a city? No, it's not. Um but do I see value in it? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, it's one of these things, right? It's a bunch of geriatric millennials. Like, what's our actual <laughs> what's our actual investment in a 24-hour party zone? Whether we would have the capacity to enjoy something like that is not a matter of, of whether it's for us. It's whether or not it's a good idea. That's no, not a matter of debate. That's a hard no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, let's put that to bed. <laughs> I went into a nightclub a few, uh, few months ago, and I went in, and I immediately turned what around, out? and the bouncer made fun of me. He's like, oh, <laughs> so uh, leaving already? I'm like, not for me, bro. Not for me. Yeah, someone's aged out of this bracket. Me. Yeah, not for me anymore. Uh, Juita, I have no strong objection to this. I think if the city believes it can bring tourists and bring people and bring life to a downtown core, I got no problem with it. No problem at all. Again, providing there there are the right things in place like security and, you know, uh, and uh, garbage cans, recycling bins, all Mm -hmm. that jazz. But I have have no problem with this idea in principle. Washrooms. Yes, I think you, you've got some really good ideas here because I, in principle, have no problem with it either uh, with the with a couple of provisos in place. Security, as you say, garbage cans, washrooms are really good points, so I will reiterate them. Uh, but uh, on top of that, I'm also going to say that this uh, party zone, for lack of a better term, uh, should be a pedestrian zone. Heck yeah. Because that's, yes. that's, that's uh, you know, yeah. that's just, you know, you, you, having cars in the mix is just going to re- lead to an upswing in drinking and driving. And mm-hmm. I think we do have to have some sensible conversations about noise and implementation of noise bylaws. Ooh. The reason I'm very sold like, on this glad, idea Glad is- you mentioned that, Joita. I'm going to come back to that thought. Yeah, the reason I mentioned this is because I actually got to see something like this in action when we were in Marseille uh, last, no, two summers ago. And it was basically a giant outdoor patio. 
So we're not just talking about nightclubs. We're actually talking about restaurants and cafes and bars staying open and having access, especially in the summer months, uh, just having access to this giant patio. And it was blocks of and streets and, and several blocks that had basically had basically been cut off from traffic. And of course, there were, you know, it was paved and there were cobblestones and you could just walk about and nobody had loud music playing. But if you walked around at 10, even 12 o'clock at night, there was a buzz of conversation. Vibrance. Like it was that sounds awesome. Yeah, it was actually really nice. It was a cool feeling. And we were right there. Um, and I was worried about the noise too, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to get a wink of sleep. But they had excellent soundproofing in the apartment. So if, if you closed your windows, you couldn't hear a thing. And you open the windows and there's this whole humming nightlife that the city had. And I loved it. it, it it's actually something that before Marseille, I would have had much I would have had far more to say in terms of how I think it's a terrible idea and there's going to be drunkenness and noise. Uh, but after going to Marseille and, and seeing how well it's worked out and how I think it's done wonders for that city and how much fun it was just to be able to stroll out at night. I mean, yeah. I am I'm not a, a young party goer anymore, but just, you know, sometimes at 12 o'clock at night, if you're not if you're sick of watching Netflix, it's nice to know that you can don a hat and a coat and go out and get a drink and come back. And, totally. You know, yeah. yeah. Have a space yeah. to do that. Like, there, I liked it. There, it made me feel young. <laughs> there, there, there's a difference like, like there's a difference between a really well executed nightlife zone and maybe uh, the Las Vegas Strip or Bourbon Street in New Orleans or Beale Street in Memphis, <laughs> or Beale right? Street, like, yeah, like, totally, yeah. yeah like, 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 there's a middle ground here that I think can easily be hit that offers a certain sense of taste and decorum mm -hmm. that isn't just like utter outright public drunkenness. Although, if you spend time on Crescent Street or Saint Laurent Street in Montreal, uh, you'll find that <laughs> you'll find that anyway. Yeah, I do yeah, think it's kind well. of an extension of the of the city's personality. But Michelle, I'm so happy. Happy that you had mentioned the uh, the the noise bylaw side of this and soundproofing because I love it when there's continuity and institutional memory on this show because a few months ago in one of your Monday segments you and I talked about Montreal actively trying to figure out their their noise bylaw codes and actually changing That's building right, for codes the benefit of music venues and, and actually changing building codes to offer better soundproofing and these are just these great examples of where those two things can intertwine. You can, while the city's actively considering noise bylaws, you can actively consider a 24-hour party zone. Absolutely. And in fact, it would be crazy not to do that. And I feel like this is an opportunity to get a lot of potential things right. Joita, what you were talking about with the, the essentially a large patio, I was a bit more concerned when I heard about cobblestones. But if you're approaching this, if you're building something new, you have a chance to do it right. And by considering all the different pieces, you're probably maximizing your chances of success. So if something is well-conceived with the appropriate bylaws in place and you can wind up with a Marseille situation, you might also wind up with a space that's more accessible than other parts mm -hmm. of the city. Yeah. That, that's a whole other, the, 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 there's, I won't go on on the corollary benefits. Of no, this, do it, do so it, Michelle. Ur urban, like urban design, urban redevelopment comes with all kinds of possible benefits. Sure, it does, and I, I like. I, I just, I just feel like if if people are taking the time to do this right and consider all the pieces, if you are implementing washrooms, you do have sound bylaws effect. You you are making sure that this is not just a walkable but a wheelable neighborhood. That this whole this mm -hmm. whole part of town, um, if you're if you're getting the right infrastructure in place. You're maximizing your chances of success for everyone and, and limiting complaints, attracting a broader array of businesses. Everything about this will come into place if you consider all the details properly. And I it, I, I had not heard of the Marseille model, Joita, but I'm, I'm totally intrigued. That sounds aspirational, frankly. Yeah. What, what you described sounds like exactly what we 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an area where I would consider living near. I wouldn't want to live too near it. I wouldn't want to live too near it, but uh, I'd no, like to be able like, to get there easily. But like within within walking distance? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah within walking distance. Yeah, exactly. Expensive, exactly. though. That's my, that's my only concern is what it would do to real estate yeah. values. The, the, the older I get, the more I realize I want to be adjacent to the party as opposed to in the party. <laughs> so like you can find yes. me on the outskirts of this 24-hour party zone. Uh, yeah. The one thing I'll say here, too, is that I think Montreal is a uniquely equipped city in this country to do it. Because you already have these large-scale events that take over huge swaths of the downtown during the course of the summer. When you look at the way they execute Montreal Jazz Fest around Place des Arts, or the way that the Just for Last Festival takes over the downtown core, and specifically St. Denis Street. Or the Grand Prix, or maybe? The, uh, the Grand Prix, uh, uh, it's large-scale, but it's, it's, a, it's maybe a little too much. But I do think that Montreal has a template in place where they can actually execute something like this because of real, lived, earned historical experience that dates back about four and a half decades. That's kind of where, that's, yeah. that's kind of where I land on this. Like, I don't know if I trust Toronto to do it because they'd be like, well, how do we uh, make sure there's a shopper's drug mart in the middle of it? Because that's what yes. everybody is going to want and, and uh, need. And we're going to not build subways for 40 years until it's ooh, really, really, ne- really necessary. <laughs> that was my last thought here mm. on the way out. I do really believe that if they want to create something like this, and Joey to mention the prospect of drunk driving, but this is something that I believe in even more fundamentally, 24-7 public transit access mm-hmm. in major cities, yes. not just in downtown cores, but Joita, you got to be quick on this, but like not just in downtown cores, but more broadly, really and truly, it's preposterous the Toronto subway doesn't start till like six in the morning. Yeah, I think if you're going to talk about revitalizing the city and especially the downtown core, definitely transit is a big one. But I'm also going to add green space in there, just having more green space and also having more child-friendly spaces because more and more people are living downtown with families because no one can afford a house. (laughs) Yeah, Michelle, 24-7 public transit, green space, like all of this can be part of this revitalization as well. It's not just a couple of nightclubs in a cool patio. Totally. And and. Also, accommodations for displaced residents. This will displace people. Yeah. Uh, there will be, that needs to be part of the picture too, not just people who are using the facilities for, for business purposes. Yeah, but again, knowing the Cartier Latin is not, is not super, super, it's not a huge population zone currently. So, so that, that's, again, another example of where that's Montreal fine. might be uniquely equipped to execute something like this. I, yeah, I, I meant that more in general terms. Oh, in general city, terms, yeah, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> considering something like this needs to factor that in, but yes, no, no, fair enough. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's why I don't trust Toronto, and that's why I don't trust Toronto, because yeah. Toronto's really good at displaying placing people and not giving them a place uh, to go. Okay, that's it. That is not an unfair stance. Not an unfair stance because the city stinks. Okay, let's go. Let's uh, <laughs> let's wrap this thing up. Joita, have a lovely weekend. Thank you, you too. Michelle, you have an awesome weekend. Talk to you on Monday morning. Sounds good. Take care, everybody. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI Audio. Coming up after the break, a couple of regional news stories for you, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's ongoing trip in Nunavut. And then Brock Richardson stops by to talk about a busy weekend in football. But I've also tasked him with the question for a non-football fan, what's the next best sporting event to take in this weekend? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, January the 19th, 2024. The month is just racing by. Coming up in the second hour of the show, AMI's CES coverage has wrapped up. Greg David shares some of his favorite takeaways from the gang at Access Tech Live and Double Tap. You'll find out whether or not Greg listened to useful or useless on Wednesday. If he didn't, I'll be infuriated. Infuriated. Plus, Green Day dropped their new album, Saviors, today. Laura Bain tells you about it and their upcoming tour in the Entertainment Reports. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in the territories, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau remains in Nunavut today. Stephanie Taylor has more. Can't help but think back to the many, many trips I got to take here as a young man discovering this country, also as a kid. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflected on a topic he doesn't often, at least not in public, which is that of his father. Trudeau was in Nunavut, a region he says he first came to as a kid with his late father, Liberal Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. It's why Trudeau says he brought his youngest, nine-year-old Hadrian, to mark the historic signing of an agreement between Ottawa and Nunavut, where the federal government transferred power back to the territory when it comes to their land, freshwater and resources. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Iqaluit. And over to the prairies, the Saskatchewan government is banning healthcare providers from giving out drug pipe kits. It has also changed how they provide needles. Providers can only give out the same number of needles that they get back. Addictions Minister Tim McLeod explains the rationale. We understand that you know the spread of bloodborne illness is is a very significant problem and um, we're continuing with the needle exchange but again balancing that with the public safety um, so that we're ensuring that the needles uh, that are going out into the community are also being returned through that exchange program. Saskatchewan has the highest HIV rates in the country. Staying in the prairies, Manitoba progressive conservatives have chosen Wayne Iwasco as their new interim leader. Iwasco reflects on the state of the party. We lost the election. I really strongly don't feel, I strongly feel that the NDP didn't actually win it. I think we lost it. And I think that there is some of that rebuilding that we have to do, that resetting on, on the trust to all Manitobans. The Tories are planning to hold a leadership convention in the fall. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, this weekend is awesome. It's also a weekend that makes me very sad because the sands of time on the football season are slipping through the hourglass. This will be the last weekend that four games are played. There are only seven football games left in the football season before I crawl into a hole and cry for six months, which does not sound particularly appealing. However, I am excited. Starting tomorrow afternoon, four games that run through till Sunday evening, beginning with the Houston Texans visiting the Baltimore Ravens. On Saturday night, the Green Bay Packers visit the San Francisco 49ers. On Sunday, you get Buffalo hosting the Kansas City Chiefs. And you also get the big old match with Detroit hosting Tampa Bay. Brock, all of the road teams are underdogs going into this weekend. Who do you think has the best chance to make an upset happen? Is it Green Bay? Is it Kansas City? 
Is it Houston or is it Tampa Bay? I think the the easy answer, that's why I'm going to give you two, because the first one I'm going to give you, I don't really consider uh, Kansas City that much of an underdog. Neither does I Las do Vegas. They, I know. Yeah, I, I just... I don't think they are that much of an underdog. So that's the one I would lean to, obviously. But I also th- I would say Green Bay would be my next pick as the uh, team that, you know, would be the underdog that could make this happen. But, yeah, my two would be Kansas City, which I don't really lean yeah. too much to, and then Green Bay. It's so hard to think of a defending Super Bowl champion as an underdog, even if they're going on the road, even if they've been a little bit underwhelming all year. Patrick Mahomes has won two Super Bowls before the age of 27 years old. He's on pace to win a whole mess in his career. He's largely considered the best quarterback breathing oxygen today. Tough to say that that's an underdog, and again, a three-point underdog essentially means that Las Vegas sees the two teams as equal and even in that Chiefs-Bills game. I know you're a Bills fan, Brock, but try to take the Bills hat off a little bit for this conversation. This has probably become the most compelling rivalry in football over the course of the last four or five years with two young emerging quarterbacks who are now meeting in the playoffs for the third time in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is going to be a... could have the potential of being a really, really good game. I think... You look at both quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, they both have the ability to use their legs and use their legs well. And so that's another one of those situations where you look at and you say, this is this is one of those other things that, that's kind of uh, something they can add. It's secondary. It's like we, we use our quarterbacks to run. These are both very talented teams, and it's really going to come down to, in my opinion, who has the ball last or oh. who doesn't turn over the ball okay. uh, so ball. as much. You're doing the Jason yeah. Garrett take from the Saturday Night Football game last week. The ball, the ball, the ball, the ball. The game is about the ball. <laughs> Brock, why do, you th- why do you think that Green Bay poses the best opportunity to upset San Francisco uh, knowing that Green Bay is about a 10-point underdog according to the sports fans in Vegas? I think that Green Bay likes the fact that they're the underdog. I think that that um, they're going to go in there with sort of no feeling of like pressure in that we got this. San Francisco really has something to prove. They they want to get over the hump. They want to get to that Super Bowl and win it. But I think Green Bay could be that team that you say, eh, they, they snuck through and, and two weeks in a row they could do this. And so that's why I believe in a little bit of Green Bay. If I'm being honest with you, Dave, I do think San Francisco gets this done, but I think it's a lot closer than 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 people may may think. There is something about football this time of year that is an untrackable statistic, and that is physicality. And that was the difference last Sunday night in the Detroit Lions-LA Rams game. Detroit was just more physical. They mauled the Rams in the second half. And that's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to think of them getting upset the Baltimore Ravens getting upset or the San Francisco 49ers getting upset. In all three cases, they're teams that just love to physically dominate their opponents. And again, you cannot measure that in a statistic. That is an eye test and ear test thing. There's something about these teams that just hit harder. But Brock, if I had to put my chips on the table to look for an upset, 
I look at Baker Mayfield and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going into Detroit. I wonder about the letdown. Detroit wins their first playoff game in over 30 years last weekend, and they were pretty much popping champagne in that locker room. They really felt like they had accomplished their Super Bowl. They slayed their demon. Whereas on the flip side, Tampa Bay has been sneaky good all year. You've got a quarterback who also has a chip on his shoulder in Baker Mayfield. And number one overall draft pick who's already on his fourth team in his career because he's been kicked around. So very similar to Detroit's Jared Goff, a former number one overall draft pick who got shipped out of the town that drafted him. I feel like Tampa Bay brings some talent and coaching to the table and the chip on the shoulder that just makes me think Detroit might be susceptible at home on Sunday. I'm, I'm taking a real close look at that line of a plus six and a half, a six and a half point underdog. And I've, I've looked at it all week. I have not pulled the trigger yet, but that's a little bit where I'm feeling. I think that the raw talent on Tampa Bay is something that has been underestimated all season long. Yeah, I, and I agree. The only thing I would add to it is maybe, and this is the athlete brain in me talking and listening to coaches for many, many years, ride the momentum. If you, you won a playoff game in, in 33 years, ride the momentum. Show me show, show me that you can hold serve, if I can use a, a tennis term here. Hold serve. We've done it once. Hold serve. Do it twice. And now we believe that's the belief that I would, if I'm the coaching staff, I'm selling that until the cows come home and being like, we did this once let's do it again. But I do, I do believe like you in the celebration hangover and hopefully with the, you know, uh, close to a week difference, maybe that's kind of wore off, but I tend to lean in in your direction, but I hope I'm wrong. There's a quote that I would love to use from Pulp Fiction here, but I cannot use it. It will get me fired. Brock, not everybody is a football fan, so what's the best non-football game of the weekend? What's the sporting event worth watching if football's not your thing? So if you are looking for a best sporting event to watch, I would cite Hockey Day in Canada, which CBC Sports and Sportsnet do a great job every year of featuring hockey stories, and all Canadian teams are are playing the game. We have the Winnipeg Jets and Ottawa Senators, then we have Vancouver and Toronto, and then we have the Battle of Alberta, Calgary, and Edmonton, and that's all day long. They you forgot stories. you forgot another Canadian team, Brock, and I'm very mad at you. Oh, the Montreal Canadiens. They're playing. They're, they're, they're playing. They're playing Boston. But yeah, there's only seven yeah, Canadian I, teams. You can't have two teams playing <laughs> uh, playing twice <laughs> in a team playing twice in a day. I get it. That's fair. No, I I, I understand. I didn't intentionally miss Montreal. Oh, you did. But, yes, you did. I know. Uh, I know yeah. you. I know your fair, tricks. Fair. But yeah, it's it's a really good day. They feature really good stories, and I believe, and I don't have this 100, percent but I believe the hockey day is being held in Newfoundland this year, where they're gonna feature stories and do all that so it'll be a really really fun day but if it's not newfoundland it will be somewhere in canada that they, that ron mclean and company <laughs> goes to and they feature stories and it's 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 a cool day it would be it would be pretty alarming if they held hockey day in canada somewhere not in canada it's like yeah we're in norway let's all have fun <laughs> hey brock thanks for this man have a good weekend good luck to your bills <laughs> you too thank you that's brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break green day you know them the punk band from the 90s they dropped their new albums their new album saviors today laura bain will tell you about it and their upcoming tour in the entertainment report i'm super excited 
We've even got a clip from their new single, which I really, really, really like. So I'm just going to jam out to that one in a little bit. And you should too. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You know, it doesn't take much to make me happy. I'm a simple man with simple needs. Over the course of the last month or so, I've really been trying to calm down on the online ordering of food. Things got a little out of control in November and December, and it takes a big bite out of that old credit card bill. But last night, one of the major food delivery companies whose name rhymes with Boober Eats decided that they were going to finally send me a discount code, 40% off my next five orders. Delightful. But here's the thing. Where I live, they will not allow me to use my Ottawa phone number, which is still my primary phone number, as my buzzer code, which means I have to use my work phone. Thankfully, I've got a work phone, which has a Toronto phone number. Open up my school bag today. Battery's dead. How am I supposed to make this order tonight if my battery is dead, but I'm going to be at work all day, and I forgot to bring my individual USB-C charger? AMI is a company that does a lot of things really well. and I'm going to show you this. And a couple of years ago, Marcom, the Marketing and Communications Department, sent out for everybody these little tiny gifts that is a multi-pronged charging cable. It's the little teensy USB connector that I've plugged into my laptop, and you have a micro USB, an Apple Lightning cable, and a USB-C cable. So, all throughout the show today, much to the chagrin of gangs in the control room because of the unesthetic pleasingness of it all, I've been charging my work phone, which means I can get a delivery tonight. Love this invention. Really smart move by the marketing and communications department. We should start to giving them out to the adoring fans of Now with Dave Brown. All right, let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, positive vibes for me in the charging my phone world. What about positive vibes in the weather world? Yeah, Dave, because most of this week, the weather reports have been around wintry weather, blizzard-like conditions, frigid cold. I wanted to look forward and have some positive vibes as well. And thankfully, the weather is looking to cooperate as we move into next week. So many cities will see a period of warmer than normal conditions due to a warm mass making its way from the south. Starting on Tuesday, you'll find milder conditions out in the prairies. So places like Calgary is set to be plus five. Medicine Hat, plus three. Regina, Minus one in Winnipeg, minus six. This would be nearly 10 degrees above seasonal conditions. So it's a nice little bump in terms of the temperature, especially after how most of January has been going. Ontario, you can expect to enjoy some of that warmth as well. They'll come right around Wednesday. So we'll start to see places like Toronto, London, and Windsor are all expected to be plus three. Oh, yeah. In Kingston, I'm gonna get my it's going to be out. plus one. Exactly. In Ottawa, it will be minus five, so not quite as warm. In Ottawa, but still, no, again, that's, that's, warmer that's, than that's, normal. That's shorts weather in Ottawa. 
<laughs> exactly. So it's a lot of warmer than normal conditions. So I wanted to bring some, you know, positive news as Love because it. we've been dealing with the wind chills, the, the double digit forecast. And, and one more bit of positive news, Dave. This isn't set to be a blimp. Uh, forecasters are predicting that this warmer than normal weather could linger towards the end of the month as well. So maybe the rest of the month, maybe the beginning of February, it's going to be a bit warmer than it has been the last few weeks. Well, if that doesn't come to fruition, I'm going to blame you. Alex, thanks for this. Talk to you in a little bit. That's Alex Smythe with the weather story of the day. In one minute, Green Day has a new album. Laura Baines got a clip from one of their songs and is going to tell you a little bit more about their upcoming tour. But first... The tech world, and this still baffles me, is buzzing about the rabbit device that was shown off at CES. Mike Dubusky hops in with another edition of Tech Trends. Rabbit is a new startup that CEO Jesse Liu says is aiming to make the world's simplest computer. The future of human-machine interfaces should be more intuitive. In other words... He thinks apps suck and the modern-day apps are just too many things that you have to do. Wired's Julian Chikatu says the company's first device, the R1, is a handheld gadget about the size of a stack of Post-its. Rabbit says by using an artificial intelligence model, the R1 can operate apps. This, unlike some of those other services that exist today, is actually executing your intent. All the user needs to do is give it a voice command. Get me an Uber to the airport or book me a flight first class to this country uh, and find me some nice hotel options. But questions remain as to how app developers will respond when the $200 R1 goes on sale. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. You know, part of that conversation is that app developers do have to buy in. They have to start developing their stuff for the operating system on the Rabbit. It's just like I said to Marco Flalo when he talked about this last Thursday in a CES segment. I understand the idea, but I'm not exactly blown away or sold by this particular execution. I love the idea of artificial intuition. I really do. Sign me up. But this doesn't feel like that. I, I feel like there's still way too much misinterpretation between your computer, whether it's AI-enabled or not, and you. Just get me a, uh, get me a Uber to the airport. That means nothing if there's three airports in your city. It means nothing if, if you can't get the Uber sent to the place you want or the type of Uber that you need. So this is one of these moments where the principle is cool, and I maybe get why there's a little bit of buzz, but I don't understand why this device in particular is getting the buzz. And I've yet to be convinced. And I will refuse to be convinced. I'm going to put my head in the sand from this point forward. But that's because I'm an American idiot. Let's bring in Laura Bain for the Entertainment Report. Laura Green Day, one of my favorite bands, dropped a new album today. Yeah, they sure did. So Saviors was released this morning. This is the band's 14th album. Uh, had a look at some reviews this morning, and they seem to be overall very positive and talking about how this is sort of a return to their roots mm -hmm. sound-wise. And that makes sense because for this album, they reunited with producer Rob Cavello, who they haven't worked with in about a decade, but who produced some of their big albums, such as Dookie, Nimrod, American Idiot. I mean, those and, are like their best three albums. <laughs> yeah, he produced other ones, but those are the ones that I was like, oh yeah, no, those are those are big ones. But um, I gave the album a listen this morning, didn't get through the whole thing, got through about half of it, and I felt like it really gave me what I want in a Green Day album, mm -hmm. which is that it was just super catchy, anti-authoritarian punk ballads, 
couldn't resist the urge to play air drums while I was listening. <laughs> and like the other thing that I like about it, and I know we're going to listen to a clip here, is I feel like I could just pick up my guitar right now, form a power chord, any power chord, and like play along. So yeah. that's something that's great about Green Day. But uh, yeah, you, te you teased a clip there. And I think yeah. we have uh, their first single from the album, The American Dream is Killing Me. I, I We do, but I just have to do a little bit of described video setup before we play it, Laura. Mm -hmm. Just just because, just because there, there is a little bit of detail here that deserves describing. So like Laura said, the song's called The American Dream is Killing Me. The video is black and white and shows close-ups of the band playing with zombie makeup on. The zombie crowd is going wild. A scared man walks through an alley and gets bitten at the neck by a bunch of zombies. Let's roll the clip. So more described video required, even though I wasn't on screen, I was bopping along to that. <laughs> Laura, I am feeling, feeling, feeling this song. I loved the first single they put out in the fall. They also included this on the EP that they dropped in the fall. So I've heard this one before today. Laura, I love the way this album sounds. When you talk about recapturing old form 30 years after the release of Dookie, that they still have that thing. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. So I did read one review this morning that was kind of criticizing the album, saying how it was just the band giving us more of the same. I don't <laughs> yeah. agree with that. I think there's something to be said for doing something and getting better at it. And that's what I feel like this album is. Yes, it's a similar sound. It's similar in thematically, but you can tell it's tighter. It's more refined because these guys have just been playing together for so long. Oh, like you can really tell that. And they've always been musically talented. A lot of their music is simple, but has a complexity to it. Like you said, pick up a guitar and play along, but there's little things they do rhythmically. Certainly the way Trey Cool plays drums has a huge part of that, but it's the pause and the tempo and the upstroke. They have always just had that little thing going in the pop punk scene. And I do unfortunately rope them in with a lot of the pop punk sounds, but they were sort of the pioneer of it. They really have their sound nailed down and they sound fantastic. Absolutely. Now, um, you know, I got to mention this because we talked about tours this week and you brought it to my attention. I missed this one. I don't know how in my search for tours happening in 2024, Green Day is going out on tour and they do have two Canadian stops in Toronto and Montreal in August. And they've got special guests, the Smashing Pumpkins, Rancid oh. and the Linda Lindas. The Linda Lindas is a newer band. I gave them a listen this morning. They're solid. Um, but that is a ticket that I would... I don't know. Certainly if it was coming here, I would absolutely give them my money to go see. It might even motivate me to get on a plane to go see that. So the Toronto show is specifically the Green Day Smashing Pumpkins, Rancid, and Linda Lindas. The Montreal show is actually part of the Oceaga Music Festival. So that actually goes back to yeah. our music festival conversation from earlier in the week. Uh, Laura, I, 
I am pretty much certain that I will be buying a ticket to that show. Uh, it screams to the 16, 17-year-old Dave Brown that you must go see this show. And Rancid is part of that as well. I, like, they're sort of more in that ska punk scene, but they made some wicked albums in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the one time I saw Smashing Pumpkins, it was when the band was in utter disarray. Uh, Darcy wasn't playing bass at the time. It was... It was the really messy bad show. Billy Corbin uh, Corgan was going through sort of his goth phase. That was really kind of stinky and no fun. Uh, but yeah, like this 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 concert tour, it screams nostalgia, but it's nostalgia that's like a magnetic pull out of my wallet. Well, and they've just announced that for these uh, on the nostalgia beat there, they're going to be playing Dookie and American Idiot in their entirety oh. during these shows. Oh. No, yeah, listen, yeah. like Laura, like, Laura I, like, I, I love it when bands do that. I, I did that for an Everclear concert a couple of years ago. They, they played the entirety of So Much for the Afterglow. And it's like, yes, play all my favorite songs. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I like that as well. And, um, you know, the other thing you can do if you want to catch them is you can just uh, ride the New York subway. They, they also made headlines this week for uh, playing in a New York subway station, which is pretty, uh, pretty exciting for fans. Kind of a nightmare if you're not a fan, though, trying to commute. <laughs> yeah, but I'll still, t- I'll still take the victory of the uh, free rock show of one of the biggest bands in the world. Uh, Laura, this is a tough question. Favorite Green Day album? I'm going to have to go with Dookie, Dave. Um, Yeah, that was kind of what got me into the band. I really haven't followed them. I mean, obviously, I wasn't aware of some of the albums, you know, American Idiot. Not so much after that, to be honest, but uh, definitely Dookie is one where I can sing along with every single track. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, Dookie obviously was the breakthrough record with songs like uh, Basket Case and When I Come Around, like very, very famous. Uh, I probably land in between American Idiot and Dookie. I always thought Nimrod was a really compelling record, especially as you got towards the end of the record where they were getting pretty experimental with some of their uh, lyric choices. Uh, the song King for a Day is all about his obsession with cross-dressing when he was a child. And it was just a really interesting like look into the brain of Billy Joe Armstrong. And I just thought there was something about that record that felt a little bit more fun because the one thing about American Idiot is it had a point of view. It was an interesting point of view in the backdrop and in the backdrop of the Iraq war, which was fascinating and such an evolution and growth of the band that was so inherently concerned with like the social issues that punk rock always sort of typically brawled against. But there was something about the fun of Nimrod. If I'm looking for fun, I'm probably spinning Nimrod and really enjoying myself. And, you know, I think you'll find that on Saviors. I noticed that it's got some very political songs, obviously, like that single we played, but it's also got some songs on there that are like just bops and just kind of about like, I don't know, love and girlfriends yeah. and, and fun. So I think it's a it's a good mix. Laura, you have yourself an amazing weekend. Uh, enjoy the album. I'm going to be listening to it tonight while I'm doing some cleaning around the apartment. Talk to you on Monday. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk coming up after the break. Alex Smythe has a question all about celebrity chefs. What kind of celebrity chef would make you shell out your hard-earned dough? I'm still not even sure I have a great answer to that question. So I've got a couple minutes to figure it out. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, you've got a story that intersects entertainment and shoving some good grub down my gullet. Yeah, Dave, because, uh, you know, as I was doing some looking for ideas to talk about, like I, I uh, had an article pop up about Maddie Matheson, the celebrity chef, restaurateur, and star or, or star and co-producer of the emmy winning the bear he they won for best outstanding comedy on monday night at this year's emmys and it got me thinking about the kind of bump that that emmy win would have on his already very popular restaurants in around toronto and other parts of the country so i wanted to start to talk about celebrity chefs and about food so it got me thinking was celebrity chef would you want to go in and drop the serious cast to go and eat at their restaurant? There's so many options to choose from. Some are bigger than others. I can't certainly count Maddie Matheson as a oh, celebrity yeah. chef. Oh yeah. And so uh, Ramia, let's start with you. Which celebrity chef would you want to go mm. and dine at their restaurant? Well, if, if I'm taking just the tips of the kind of uh, food and conversations that I like from certain celebrity chefs and then saying I would go eat there because I like them, it would probably be Jamie Oliver because he's just, you know, sending his expertise into our kitchens, our, you know, basic kitchens all the time D does he uh, does but, he have does he have commercial i don't know that's what i was oh, okay that's what i was just gonna ask i have no idea which one of these chefs that uh i like have their own uh restaurants and if they don't they should probably open one but anyways that's beyond my um so awareness so if you so even if you've been to one already you don't know that you were actually at a celebrity a celebrity chef restaurants because because it, it is possible that and all four of us could have actually been to a celebrity chef yeah. restaurant and just don't know it because i know two off the top of my head that i've already been to including okay. uh maddie matheson's maddie's patties mm -hmm. across from uh from uh which park is it in toronto that it's right across from trinity bellwoods park i i've i've gotten burgers at maddie's patties and it was pretty good i've also been to a david chang's momofuku in a downtown mm -hmm. Toronto and I uh, didn't realize that when my friends picked up the tab exactly <laughs> what a giant tab they picked up along the way thanks Sadia wow. thanks Jason um <laughs> Nisreen, what about you I didn't want this to be a given because I only got into his shows last year and that's why I'm mentioning his name it's Chef Ramsay I've oh Gordon Ramsay I know this yeah. is gonna be like a yeah he's a big one obviously but I only got into his shows uh, last year, um, and I know his shows has have been going on for quite some time. I watched his YouTube channel, so I watched Hell's Kitchen and uh, Kitchen Nightmares and a lot of other side uh, YouTube videos about him. So I got really into Chef Ramsay and just the entertainment behind it um, is insane. When, when I'm talking about, I went to Vegas, but I never really went to his into his restaurant he's got so a bunch he's, he's, he's got a bunch down there spread across a couple different yeah. casinos yeah so i i really was tempted to go uh because in the show they seem like you know they're he's always yelling at the, the customer uh customers and the employees and whatever so the, the entertainment customers. behind it is maybe the big yeah there was episodes showing that so that was entertaining itself. oh my gosh oh my gosh so, yeah, so that's one thing that I would I would like to do. Alex, you're a foodie. I feel like I feel mm -hmm. like the answer to the question is you've already been. 
Uh, not that I know of, Dave. Uh, surprisingly, um, that's that's always been something on my list. I usually go with people who don't want to drop the the cash needed to go to some of the the nicer restaurants. Gordon Ramsay certainly has been on my list for a long time, but uh, I actually started once I got into the bear, and I knew Maddie Matheson from before, like he used to have his own like YouTube channel and, and, and shows and stuff like that on, on different networks. And I started to explore his different kind of restaurants. And there was actually an architectural digest video on one of his newer restaurants in Toronto. It was like a, a steak and seafood uh, house and it looks beautiful. It kind of is a bit reminiscent of the bear in season two with the uh, kind of the, the restaurant relaunch. And so, it kind of got me thinking, I, I kind of want to go there and I want to check it out. I want to dine. I want to have that full experience because the food looks amazing. Obviously, you know, it's going to be a pricey meal, but I think it's going to be very much worth it. And, you know, you can go and have a night out in Toronto. It's not too, too hard to get to. You know, celebrity chef is a little bit of an arbitrary term because, yes, they're the ones who maybe are on TV shows or have huge popular social media followings, but there's also such a thing as local celebrity chefs, right? There's there's a restaurateur in Ottawa named Stephen Bechta, by the way, shout out, Algonquin College graduate, go Thunder. Uh, he has a number of restaurants all over the city that offer a wide range of price points. Like, I've been to his brunch restaurant, which was super affordable, and I've been to one of his really, really, really really nice restaurants, which was a little bit less affordable. And Ramya, I think that's one of the things that when people consider or contemplate what constitutes celebrity chef, there is sort of the international, the Wolfgang Pucks, the Gordon Ramseys, but there's also a ton of the Stephen Bechtas of this world. Mm-hmm. Of course there are. And I, I guess that's the the local chefs made celebrity what would you even credit that to is it just the the localities and and people loving um i don't know the engagement around the the people cooking their food and all of that or would you even credit that to social media and everything where we can just keep in touch with people in bigger ways and kind of feel interconnected that way yeah, I, I do think, Nazreen, it's about the connection of the community, right? Because, like, somebody might not be a celebrity chef, but they might be the Jamaican beef patty man at, the, uh, at, at like, the subway station, yeah. right? Like, and that constitutes celebrity and fame because they do something so well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm pointing out as I think it's how popular the chef is and high ratings. I think ratings are very important when it comes to chefs, especially local chefs. Um, celebrity chefs, I agree with you, Dave. I just, I feel like when you say celebrity chefs, I think about Salt in Bay. general. I'm, yeah. do, I'm doing, I'm doing the, the 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 sprinkling of my fingers right now. Salt Bay, <laughs> and um, I think yeah, they they focus on the their followers, the popularity. But I think local chef, uh, celebrity chefs are very. Uh, important as well yeah. to point out. And that's one of the things that's changing because of the corporatization of food culture that you're losing out on a lot of what truly are neighborhood amazing chefs and you're sort of getting lost in like the top, top, top and you're, and you're getting a lot of like the fast food but you're not getting a lot of that great mid-tier emerging cooking. At least you have to go looking for it if you want to get it. Sometime I've got to get my friend Jacob on the show to tell the story of him and his wife going to this restaurant in Chicago I can't do the story justice. It is unbelievable the experience they were run through. And when they told me the bill and told me the experience, I was like, 
That is not worth it. But that's what they call in the business a tease. I will email Jacob on the weekend. Alex, thank you for this. Nazreen, thank you. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on the show this afternoon? All right, we got gardening with Susan Kearney. Susan is talking about the plants around this time that actually don't mind the lack of sunlight and the lack of daylight, uh, and they do pretty well in the winter. She's talking indoor plants specifically. Also, Ryan Huey on the Chatty Bookshelf is going to uh, tell us about two celebrity-written books, not memoirs, but just books slash audiobooks that he's looking forward to in 2024. And we've got the app update with John Beeler. He's talking CES, of course, more gadgets, more tech. Uh, the one thing he's going to feature is a device that turns your tongue into a mouse for your computer. Ooh. So accessibility. All mm -hmm. right. Lots of stuff you can do with your tongue. Ramya, thank you for this. <laughs> That's a note. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's Ramya. And within you can find Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv at 2 p.m. Eastern time coming up after the break, putting a bow on the coverage of CES. AMI-tv did a bunch of really cool stuff. So did AMI-audio, frankly, so did this show. If my suit jacket wasn't so tight, I would pat myself on the back. Greg David will talk a little bit about the highlights and big takeaways from how AMI covered CES. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. CES, CES, CES. Lots of technology talk over the course of the last week and a half about CES. And that's for good reason, because there was all kinds of cool technology being shown off in Las Vegas. And AMI's Access Tech Live and Double Tap did a really good job covering the event. By the way, so did now with Dave Brown. But let's find out what Greg David thought about the way AMI handled CES. Greg is a communications specialist as part of AMI's marketing and communications department. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. And and I do have to say, yes, you guys did a wonderful job, as did Kelly and Ramya covering CES. It really has become kind of an all-encompassing thing at AMI, and for good reason. Yeah, listen, CES is ultimately a media event. It's something that the media loves to jump on en masse, but there's different ways that people can approach it. And that's what was so cool about the way that Access Tech Live handled it. It was really accessibility-focused compared to how, how we handled it on Wednesday with Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore, where it was taking non-accessibility products and applying an accessibility lens. And I think that's why CES is so rich for interesting conversations about the present of technology and the future of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for every like heated bidet or heated toilet seat that's that, you know, is admittedly great. You know, I think what we do really well is like you mentioned, the 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 angle that you took earlier on in the week with uh, with Meg and, and Jenny was great. And then, of course, the guys that we're going to talk about now with, you know, largely going at the accessibility angle, which is, uh, you know, arguably important for us to talk about. Yeah. What did you think about the way that especially the, well, let's start with the Access Tech Live gang, because sure. Stephen and Mark had a camera on the ground while they were still broadcasting remotely. What do you think about that approach and what were some of your takeaways about the job they did? 
I really like that approach. You know, at first blush, I thought, oh, they're not actually there. So is that going to be okay? And yeah, they had support staff on the other end coordinating all the interviews. And so they were able to pull these interviews straight from the floor. And it just shows you the strength of Zoom that these folks could join them from Las Vegas through all the different time zones and then technology is there. I really liked it. I felt like it was a little bit more intimate because the camera was getting in close on the person's face when they were speaking, as opposed to sometimes that back and forth where you're trying to, you know, do a two shot or yeah, a wider yeah. shot to include the host. I, I really like the way they covered it this year. Yeah, I thought it was really, really brilliant. And they just brought in a lot of great guests as well. People who were deeply connected to the accessibility side of the tech that was being shown off there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you totally. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, a hand stabilizer for, for somebody that that uh, has the shakes and, and and they're able to eat and do do things as a result of it. But then you've got something like a, like a little box that you can attach to your uh, horizontal blind so that you can make them open and close with an app. Mm -hmm. Like you had a wide mm -hmm. range of things to to talk about as well. Yeah, there was hearing there was hearing loss technology. There was exoskeletons. Like there was all kinds of wild stuff going on. But it wasn't just those two live broadcasts that Access Tech Live did so well, uh, Greg, they also did a really nice job on the Double Tap AMI-audio show when Stephen and Sean got together earlier this week and really recapped the whole thing with such a thorough lens. And again, as always, because they're so darn charming, it was super fun to listen to. Yeah, it absolutely was. You know, Stephen was breaking down each of some of the key headlines from an accessibility standpoint, and then he and Sean Priest would weigh in on their thoughts uh, and whether, you know, they they thought that this was a good thing or a bad thing, and also acknowledging that, you know, even though some of these items and a large number of these items may never actually make it to the marketplace, at least those discussions are going on, at least the thinking is there with regard to making things that are accessible for the disability community. Greg, were there any gadgets that jumped out to you as the week unfolded? I, meant, I mentioned that useful or useless segment on Wednesday, the large screen, uh, portable, foldable large screen, which I could just so totally make a case for how that would work in my life, or the idea of a non-tangling charging cord. I was like, yeah. these are just awesome things that jump out to me that I want. A lot of people loved the extension, the physical keyboard that you could attach to the bottom of your smartphone to essentially mm -hmm. turn it into a BlackBerry. Like, that yep. jumped out to a lot of people. Well, what jumped out to you as you were sort of taking in the CES coverage? The one amazing thing uh, was the mouth pad. So M-O-U-T-H pad, not mouse pad, by a company called Augmental. And this is tongue driven. So it's a mouse pad, but it's in the roof of your mouth. And so if you do not have the use of your hands, you're able to use your tongue to move the cursor around your screen. It connects via Bluetooth to your computer, your phone, whatever. And you use your tongue to do the clicking and the navigation around it. And I thought that that was amazing. And that's the type of thing that I get really excited about when you see something at CES like that. Like, it's just incredible the stuff that they're able to come up with. I just instinctively licked my hard palate as you were describing <laughs> that, just to see what that what that might feel like. Hey, Greg, I'm going to give a couple points of contact here, just in case folks did miss any of these broadcasts. The CES special episodes of Access Tech Live can be streamed at amiplus.ca, amiplus.ca. Remember, you have to spell out plus when you're putting that into your URL. You can download the CES episode of the Double Tap podcast wherever you get your podcasts and if you did miss the segment that Jenny, Megan and I did on Wednesday on Now with Dave Brown, don't forget this is not just a live television show or streaming an audio at amiplus.ca you can also download it on your favorite podcasting platform. You have to punch in almost the whole name of the podcast though Now with 
Dave Brown, because now with it's an Edmonton Oilers podcast that pops up first. You got to get the whole thing in there. Now with Dave Brown, it probably shows up around DA, but just punch in the whole thing. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review. Hey, Greg, let's jump over to the more broader world of television, but still with an accessibility slant. CTV is debuting a new drama series on Sunday night. It's about a homicide detective who gets diagnosed as blind and resorts and uses a a, a, a visual assistance app yeah. and is paired with a remote guide to help her solve a crime. So, Greg, you actually had a chance to get a screener of the first episode of Sight Unseen. What were your thoughts? I thought it was really interesting, and, and I know there's going to be some interviews with the stars on now yes, uh, with Dave Brown yes. next week. But I was really impressed. You know, I kind of I go into this now with a jaded eye of how is the disability community going to be represented. But, you know, when it comes right down to the storytelling, I really like the episode. It's always tough to, you know, create a, a world for a new viewer, introduce a whole bunch of characters that you have to care about or in some case not care about if they're the bad guys. But I was really impressed. Um, the lead actress, her name is Dolly Lewis, and she is playing uh, this big city detective who begins to lose her eyesight. And she is a member of the partially sighted community and I thought that that was really important when it came to the casting but it is full of a lot of energy there's also a lot of drama because um because her character uh uh is uh, is going through uh, her, her name is Tess the character's name she's going through this journey into into losing her sight and how is that going to affect whether she's able to be a police detective anymore and a successful one at that and like you said off the top she's paired with uh, with a guide a seeing eye guide through technology uh, who is talking her through like a seeing AI and other apps mm. what's going on in front of her so you know really interesting from that standpoint and it's a pretty much aside from that it's your procedural cop drama which I always like. Greg, I am not a high-powered Falutin executive like yourself. I don't get access to these special screeners. That's okay, though, because I watch a lot of football on CTV. So yep. I've seen a bunch of previews for the show. And what's been really cool in the previews is there is something that the creators of the show are doing to represent the viewpoint of Tess by mm -hmm. creating blurs on the screen or visual yep. effects on the screen. What did you think about that stylistic choice? I thought that that was really interesting and one of the strong points of the show because it's easy to just tell the story, uh, you know, of, of somebody who is 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 going blind, but to show that technology and switch it around so that you're getting an idea of what she is seeing, I thought was really really interesting and a very big part of the storytelling and obviously what makes this show different from your common procedural. Uh, they did have uh, blind and partially sighted consultants on board as well as the lead actress, as I said, to make sure that they got things right. But also one of the co-creators of the show is going through her own partial sight uh, journey as well. So they had three big standpoint, you know, three angles to, to cover there and make sure that they got it right when, when they came to the show. And I also want to mention CTV was really smart to broadcast this first episode after the NFL games, kind of like a post-Super Bowl <laughs> time slot, if you will, right? There's some very famous shows that have been given a massive yep. bump from being put after a football game. 1999, Family Guy made its debut right after that Super Bowl. Now, it had its ups and downs in terms of keeping its consistency, but it was a monster debut number for that show. And one of the most famous episodes of The Office ever was shown after the Pittsburgh Steelers Arizona Cardinals Super Bowl in the spring, in the winter of 2009. That was the highest rating number The Office ever pulled. And it was a super popular show.
Yeah, and I remember there was a special Friends episode that aired after it, The X-Files as well. And oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, kudos to CTV for being smart and putting in there because there will be a lot of eyeballs watching the football and then hanging with Sight Unseen after that. Was that the Friends episode that had Julia Roberts in it? I think it was. I think it, it was. It was either that one or it could have been the Brad Pitt one or it might have been the ER one with George Clooney and oh. Noah Wiley. I I can't remember because there was there. I think there was probably more than one, but you know, I, it was it was definitely with a, a you know a celebrity in the cast. Yeah, it wasn't the Brad Pitt one. That was a Thanksgiving episode. I think okay. it was the Ju- oh, I think it was right. the Julia Roberts where she made Chandler okay. uh, wear her panties. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. Greg, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too. Have a great weekend. Dave. <laughs> That's Greg David, communication specialist at AMI. Don't forget, sight unseen. Sunday, January 21st, 10 p.m. Eastern time on CTV, right after the football that I will be consuming. Consuming, consuming, consuming. Don't forget, this uh, broadcast will be available in described video, and Alex Smythe is going to share a couple interviews with a few of the actors next week on Now with Dave Brown. Once again, in the business, they call that a front sell. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. We come back Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun like we do every single Friday. We say thank you to the people who put this show together behind the scenes. Roll. Those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host, producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Mutin, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DB producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live productions, Paula Denine. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice president of programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.